Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. Caesar, Charlemagne, or Napoleon, you name it, they all have been here. In the last episode, we conclude with the Batavian Revolt in 6970 CE. This uprising marks the end of the early era of Roman Cologne, being founded as a settlement of the Ubii in approximately 19 BCE. Cologne was raised in status to Roman colony in 50 CE by Agrippina, Empress of Rome, who was born here. With the end of the Batavian Revolt 20 years later, a lot of water flowed down the Rhine. This is a metaphor that is used in the Rhineland to tell you that a lot of time has passed. So it's like your water under, under the bridge, I guess. As I have promised in the last episode, let's take a step back from the narration of events and go to a more analytic level. With all the Romans and Germanic tribes fighting, intrigues and civil wars, we never had a chance to really talk about how Rome Cologne looked like. Well, you don't have to wait any second longer. The next two episodes we will talk about how Roman Cologne functioned. A Roman border town at the end of the so-called civilized world. For this time I would love to put an emphasis on two main infrastructures of Roman Cologne that still can be visited and looked at up until today. Water and Stones I was really struggling with myself if I should focus for this episode on the political and social topics of Rome Cologne, or should I rather talk about two important infrastructures that enable the young city to live and prosper. For no rational reasons, I decided to do the latter. It has a lot to do with these two things being more approachable for you and me, since they are in many parts still around. So let's cut to the chase. This episode will be about Cologne's waterline and the city wall. And though I know this might put my podcast into danger because at first those two objects sound very dull, I totally encourage you to give this a chance, please. Still here? Yes? Dankeschön. The waterline. Roman Cologne had a waterline coming from outside the city. And it was and it is quite remarkable. The waterline was not just a short tube coming from just outside the town. No, it went all the way southwest into the Eifel, a low mountain range in western Germany. It was over 95 kilometers long, that is close to 60 miles for my possible American listeners. This is noteworthy. It means that the Cologne waterline was the longest of its kind north of the Alps in Europe and one of the longest ever built by the Romans. But wait, you might say, they have the Rhine River right in front of them. Why don't they take the water from there? Well, the Romans knew how important a steady and most importantly clean water supply was. If Cologne was besieged by, for example, Germanic tribes riding on boats on the Rhine, well, no water. And never forget, pollution of the environment is not just a modern day problem. It was totally normal to dump all your trash or wastewater into the Rhine River. And there were several settlements and Roman military camps upstream in today's southern Germany. They would all do number one and number two and flush it into the river downstream to Cologne. 
Who would be that stupid to drink water out of a river that half of Central Europe uses as dump? But what else makes this waterline so stunning besides its length? No pun intended. First, engineering. Though being 95 kilometers long, it didn't need any pumps. A small but steady gradient going all the way down up into Cologne made no pumps necessary. You had to be a genius in engineering to figure that small gradient going over that long distance. The Romans did that without computers or calculators, they just figured it out with tools and math. Throughout the whole distance, there's an average gradient of just 0.36%, meaning that over a length of 100 meters, like 110 yards, the height difference was just 36 centimeters. That's like a little more than the size of a subway sandwich on American football. I get overexcited, I know, but remember they did that without any of the technology engineers and architects can use today. Second, the performance of it. This water line supplied over 20 million liters of water each day. That's, for you Americans, 5.3 million gallons a day. If you're not able to make use of these numbers yet, like I was, an average German citizen uses around 125 liters of fresh water each day, and 40 liters of that just for flushing the toilet. If we now divide those 20 million liters by 15,000, and I don't want to spawn next episode, but this will be the number of people living inside the city walls during the peak of Roman Cologne, we get a daily average water consumption of 1300 liters a day for each inhabitant. That is 10 times the consumption of a modern-day German citizen. But I must admit, saving water has been a policy for quite some time in our country. But even US citizens with a daily average of 290 liters and people living in Dubai using an amount of 500 liters are still by many times far away from these Roman numbers. And those two countries are number two and one of most consumed water a day per inhabitant in our time. But as I said, the Romans did not just import wine and olives to Germania, they also brought with them their high urbanized lifestyle. But where did that enormous need for water come from? Many private homes had access to the water line, yes, but still the majority of the inhabitants of the city got their water from public wells, they were not supplied by groundwater, but from the water line. Many businesses needed water, of course. But what really caused the hunger for all that water was the bathing culture. In thermal baths, Romans would not just clean themselves from sweat and dirt. The thermal baths were places where you would hang out, relax, do sports, gamble with your friends, eat out, you could do networking in all kinds of ways, and of course, you could do business. The thermal baths were the places of socialization. If I had a time machine, I'd really love to visit an ancient thermal bath. But for my American listeners, and I'm sorry for the bias of you guys being prude, and us Europeans being crude on the other hand, you go in there naked. No swim trunks allowed. But to calm things down a little bit, yes, boys and girls had to bath separately. The Romans in Cologne had built a smaller waterline before this big waterline around 40 CE, coming from a creek in the west of Cologne in today's neighboring town of Hürz. But alone, this small waterline very quickly had proven to be insufficient for the high water demand of Cologne. So approximately in 90 CE, they built the waterline coming from the low mountain range Eiffel 
going all the way 95 kilometers, the same time when the city wall made out of stone was built as well, and we will get to that later of course. Several tributaries supplied it with extra water to reach that 20 million liters a day. Most of the water line was being built underground so that it would not freeze in winter time. That's smart, I guess. But of course, there have been some valleys along the way that had to be bypassed. A total number of three big bridges made that possible, granting that small but steady gradient that kept the water flowing into Cologne. Adding to that, several small bridges were built as well. From those three big bridges, two have been demolished. It was a much sought after building material for the people in the post-ancient times who had lost the knowledge of this ancient technology of water supply, especially during the dark, dark Middle Ages. But there's a reconstructed bridge segment that is still around in the city of Mechanisch, if you want to check that out. If you want to go on a hike and get some knowledge, the Roman waterline hiking path is your chance to combine both, to hike and to see all kinds of segments of the Roman waterline. The just mentioned bridge and a lot of collecting, settling, distribution and stilling basins, for example. The leading historian in this field today, his name being Herr Werner Eck, estimated that 500,000 cubic meters of earth, that is 17.5 million cubic feet of earth, were dug and millions of pieces of waywacker with a volume of 150,000 cubic meters have been used for building the waterline. And just for a short break, let's give her Werner Eck a hand. This historian and professor of the University of Cologne has dedicated all of his life to the studies of ancient Rome and its impact onto Cologne in particular. All these early episodes of this podcast, they would be impossible without the research Havana Eck has done for over 55 years now. Dankeschön. I have always missed events where I could meet him in person, being mostly an inactive member of several small historical clubs in Cologne. I hope that I will someday. Close to today's Neumarkt, Cologne's biggest town square, the waterline reached the city wall of Cologne. Excavations have shown that it went into a big building that served as a water reservoir and distributor. <sighs> French-English words, I love them. From there, pipes in all shapes and sizes distributed the water to the various households of rich citizens, to the public wells, businesses, and the thermal baths, of course. As a little side story, we have complete knowledge of where the Cologne waterline went along across. But by twist of fate to date, we only have just small findings of Cologne's water pipes inside the city of Cologne. We must assume that constant settling of the area led to the destruction or other use when the ancient technology of water supply systems got lost in the Middle Ages. But when water comes into your city, it has to leave it as well. And here we have a great amount of archaeological finds. As it has always been, densely populated areas create a lot of wastewater. Not only wastewater is an issue for a city. Melting snow and heavy rain can lead to flooding. So it is important to have a high efficient drainage system. At the end of the first century CE, Cologne had established such a drainage system. Network of stone sewers led all the water down into the Rhine. Today we know of four main outlets that went from the western parts of the city into the Rhine. And of course there were several smaller pipes that distributed to those four main sewers. 
they are mainly 6 to 9 meters below the Roman street level. And since those Roman streets are often below today's street level as well, you gotta dig deep for them. But some of them are even accessible today. You can, for example, walk a 140 meter long section of one main sewer that ran across the Praetorium. Remember? The Praetorium was the headquarter of the administration and the palace of the Roman governor of the province. But we will get to that topic in the next episode. But sadly, and if you follow me on social media, you already knew it. The Praetorium in Cologne is closed due to reconstruction works of the museum. And this also includes the 140 meter long section of the main sewer right next to it. Because you can only access it through the entrance of the Praetorium Museum. Well, maybe another time in 2022, when it is supposed to be reopened. And right at the moment I'm recording this, I read in the newspaper that it is even postponed to 2025. There is so much more I could tell you about this topic, but I guess I should move along to the other big construction I want to talk about. Roman Cologne's stone city wall. Since the early days of being a small settlement, we can assume that Cologne had a wall or comparable type of fortification. The historian Tacitus tells this in his works, but doesn't get into any detail. The Opitomobiorum, the settlement of the Ubi and the first name Cologne ever had, must have had a wooden stockade with trenches and wooden watchtowers, just as every Roman military fort had. It has always been debated when the stone wall replaced the wooden wall. Some have argued that it happened immediately after Cologne became a Roman colony by Crupinus initiative in 50 CE. Because how in the world could Cologne have survived the Batavian revolt that just happened 19 years later after 50 CE without having a mighty strong city wall made out of stone? But latest archaeological finds make it more plausible that buildings started in around 90 CE, so 20 years after the Batavian revolt had happened and things had cooled off in the region. Again, dendrochronology, my favorite Latinized English word is back, gives us the clues we need. Because for stabilizing the city wall on the waterfront at the Rhine, the Romans rammed timber poles into the riverbank. And like the scientists had done with the Ubia monument from a few episodes before, that also had timber poles as a foundation, they could trace back these timber poles being cut in around 90 CE. This is the same time span when the big waterline was built. And it is not by accident. The year 19 CE is a time where the Rhineland was at peace. So the Roman legions needed jobs to do, so they would not bore themselves to death, I guess. Since the legions were expert in engineering, it is no wonder they were the ones building both the waterline and the city wall. But back to the topic of when the stone wall was built. When Civilis and his allies threatened Cologne in 69-70 CE, they still encountered just a wooden stockade and a wide trench system to prevent them from attacking the city. But don't be misled. Even though it was just a wooden stockade, this was still Roman engineering we are talking about. Powerful enough to keep the city safe during the Batavian Revolt, as we learned from the last episode. Remember, Romans were great in fortifying. Caesar and his army wouldn't have survived the war in Gaul without being able to efficiently fortify as fast and as good as possible against an enemy that most of the time outnumbered them by many times if we can trust the numbers that Caesar gave us in his report of the Gallic War. 
which to be honest should always be treated with caution since Caesar loved to exaggerate the numbers of his enemies. And again, one of the main demands of the Batavian rebels in 70 CE was to tear down the city wall. This tells us how impressive even this wooden wall must have been already before it was replaced by stone. Regarding the building of the wall, excavations revealed that the stone wall must have had a uniform design and might have taken up to 20 years to complete it, but no longer. So the construction time was around 90 to 110 CE. When the wall was finished being built, Cologne was then indeed even more a symbol of Roman might in the region. If you approached the city, the wall must have been visible from very far as to being 8 meters or yards high. At that time, this was very high. The enemies across the Rhine in barbarian territory had not the knowledge of siege weapons that could overcome such a stone structure. Yet. Besides that, the Rhine River to the east of the city was also a mighty wall in its own kind of way. A Roman fleet that was stationed just outside southern Cologne patrolled the river. The Roman city wall would exist fully and totally intact for military and safety purposes up until the 12th century, then being 1100 years old. And still today, it is the best preserved ancient structure in Cologne. When the wall lost its military purpose in the high middle ages, it was still maintained. Recycling isn't just a thing people started at the end of the 20th century. Some would use parts of the wall to build their houses next to it, others would use it as foundation to build something on top of it, or the clergy would use parts of the wall to fortify their monasteries against the sinners around them to cut themselves of the world to be just connected to God. Even though I spoil a little bit in terms of chronology, I will put images of the Roman city wall being reused in the Middle Ages in this episode's companion post on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com. And of course, recent pictures as well. But we will get to that now. There's another reason why the wall is still around. Consider laziness. Do you have any idea how exhausting it is to tear down a massive stone wall with just your hands? Well, no way. I'm not going to do that. And it's good that it was and still is maintained at some places where it still exists. At the Rhine site in the east, the Romans dug deep into the riverbed for the wall's foundation. Those foundations are still in use today. They are the reason your feet are still dry when you walk through the old town quarter nowadays. And several former military towers were remodeled as houses or even integrated as a part into a church like at Sankt Aposteln at Neumarkt, remember, Cologne's biggest town square. But I will get to that topic later in this episode. And the church of Sankt Aposteln will get mentioned in a later episode when we will discuss the rise of early Christianity in Cologne. First, let's spit out some numbers. Cologne's Roman defensive city wall was 3911.8 meters long, to be very precisely, around 2.4 miles and surround a nearly square territory, measuring 96.8 hectares or around 240 acres. Most of the time this wall followed natural borders, in the east the Rhine River, in the south the Duffesbach, a little creek that goes all along up until the already mentioned Ubia monument of a few episodes before, and to the north and to the west it would end where the Romans under Governor Agrippa had detected that 
floodproof hill area where they had decided to resettle the Germanic tribe of the Ubii. So yeah, they built a wall. How impressive is that, you might say, but doing this at that time in that region with the comparable simple tools from nowadays. Building a wall like this was a masterly performance in terms of engineering and logistics, especially the latter. There are and never were any stone quarries in and around Cologne. The stones need for construction were shipped all the way on the Rhine from faraway regions. And as always throughout the course of human history, a wall was not only meant as military fortification but also to show the pride and glory of this Roman colony. This can still be seen at one of the Roman towers in Cologne. Mosaics, I hope that's how you say that in English, those little stone pieces. At the wall adorn up until today this tower in the Zeughausstraße, a road in central Cologne. There are several Roman towers of once 19 in total that are still left in Cologne up until today, all in different kinds of ways, so I will give you just a few examples. One is not far away from Cologne Cathedral, just 500 meters on just-mentioned Zeughausstraße, the street in downtown Cologne. The street runs in parallel to the Roman city wall, directly to today's Cologne Cathedral, regarding that the cathedral itself was built close to and later when it was expanded on top of the Roman city wall's foundation. This tower marks the northwest corner of the Roman city wall, and here you can still see the earlier mentioned mosaics on its wall. This tower survived the end of Rome Cologne through the ages pretty well. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it was later integrated into and used by a Franciscan convent. And I kid you not, the sisters who lived there used it as a toilet. But hey, that's the way it was possible to preserve this ancient building up until today. I'm fine with it. After the convent was dissolved by Napoleon in 1802, it was built into an apartment house. Oops, I get way too far again in our chronology, sorry. The tower still is in many ways in its original form, but the crenellated ramparts on top of it were added in later times. They are also way too low to be of any good use in military terms. And if by chance you are interested in World War II and have some knowledge about the advance of Allied forces into Western Germany in 1945, you have most likely seen this particular Roman tower in Cologne. Here, the famous Panzerduell, or in English, tank fight, in Cologne started that is quite known among military historians. Like I said, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll keep it short and simple, but recording this in springtime of 2020, this marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Cologne by Allied forces in World War II, so I will take this liberty. This Panzerduell, this tank battle, was, compared to the atrocities of World War II, a minor light battle, but nevertheless deadly and horrifying. US soldier and cameraman James Bates filmed it. He was live filming during this fight. Don't get me wrong, much was filmed in World War II by all sides, but live-action close combat fights that were not restaged were rare. So, these scenes, US forces advancing into downtown Cologne in 1945, are one of the most famous film clips of World War II in America. Cameraman James Bates himself 
said in an interview in 1992, Cologne was the biggest moment of his life. Well, with that little story, now you see how historians like me are. They always drift off topic. But if you're like me and can't wait to learn more about this event in March 1945, check out the link in this episode's companion post on the history of cologne.wordpress.com. I can't mention it enough. This page, made by a German, is also in English, and I posted the link so you can read it all in English. And if you can wait, well, just wait simply a few hundred episodes until we get there to World War II in Cologne. But back to this Roman tower in Zeukhausstraße, this street in downtown Cologne. If you follow that street toward Cologne Cathedral, there are many pieces of the Roman city wall that you can easily miss if you do not pay enough attention while you're strolling. This is of course not your fault, but the fault of the administration of the city of Cologne. They own like, I think, 400 meters of the remaining 700 meters that are still around of this Roman city wall. For example, one big part of the wall is in the middle of a massive street intersection, the so-called North-South Drive. If I have any German listeners here that are from Cologne, it is the Nord-Südfahrt. You might know that street. But since succeeding generations always built on top of the foundations of older buildings, this big part of the wall plus the tower is below the street level from nowadays. It is still accessible, but you must walk into this crowded middle of this main street intersection to see it. And you can actually walk down to it. I will definitely post pictures of all these mentioned wall sections and towers in this episode's companion post on the always mentioned the history of cologne.wordpress.com. Another tower can be seen in Helenenstraße, that would be Helen Street in English, just a few blocks away. But this one is badly preserved, time hasn't, hasn't been well to it. The interior of the tower and several parts of it are missing. Plants are growing on the wall. This gives the structure a really mythical touch though. And another tower we already met. It is the so-called Ubia Monument. The Ubia Monument we had in a few episodes earlier about the Oppidum Ubiorum. But let me check on time, we are nearly at 30 minutes again. So I see this episode is getting too long again already. I honestly didn't know that I could fill a lot of time with these two structures, or like three structures because the sewers are their own kind of structure, I guess. But like I said, I wanted to go easier on you this time. Well, that didn't work, I guess. And I don't want you to be kept too long with this wall and this waterline and this sewer. But if you want to see pictures and more information about it, I put a link in this episode's companion post and no, don't worry, I won't say the link ag name again. This link is by the Roman Germanic Museum of Cologne and it is also in English. So you can follow along very easily every single station of Cologne's city wall. To get to a conclusion, when I said that the Roman city wall was kept maintained even after it it lost its military necessity throughout the ages, I sadly have to announce that today that isn't really true at the moment. If I look into the latest news on this topic, it makes me sad. The Roman city wall is in many parts in a bad shape. Well, of course, after 2000 years, none of us will look great, I guess, but it made it so far and now, because of the neglect by the city's administration, 
The wall is suffering under vegetation that gets inside of the structure and breaking it as we speak more and more. Oh, and don't forget air pollution. It got better in Cologne, but still, it is a thing that is affecting old stone structures. The biggest victim is Cologne Cathedral, of course, but this is another topic and we will get to that. But regarding the wall, and everyone likes a good movie, I guess, and really, I like this movie, but it was a pure act of vandalism when in summer of 2019, someone sprayed in very big letters the famous Latin sentence Romans go home from the Monty Python movie Life of Brian. The neglect by the city's administration made many Cologne citizens mad. Some of them got so mad they founded a club to collect money for its restoration. Right now their aim is to raise around 1.5 million euros, that is like 1.7 million US dollars. This is needed just to save what is still there. Then they have to raise money to maintain it for the generations to come. And the tower where the famous tank battle started in 1945? Really, just a few days ago, I am recording this in March 2020, the local newspapers reported that a cavity of nearly 16 centimeters, like 4 inches, have been found inside of the tower, threatening the stability of the facade with the ancient mosaics on it. And without that club that is committed to save the Roman city wall with its remaining towers, this would have never been discovered. This is no ad after all for the club I'm talking about, but I gotta say, when I researched for this episode, I got mad too about how our Roman heritage is neglected. So, you might have guessed it, I joined the club. 50 euros a year is not much, but I guess every cent helps. So let's have a break right here. Tell me what you think about this episode. This is the kind of episode I announce in a trailer of this podcast. An episode about architecture. So I'd really like to know what you thought of doing it like this. Tell me, please. There are many options. Write me an email or comment on social media like Facebook or Instagram. And last but not least, if you think this podcast is in some kind of way special to you, I guess it is because you have already listened up until now and to the episodes before, please consider rating this podcast on Apple Podcast if this is your podcast platform. I know, this shouldn't bother me, but next to a few 5-star ratings, someone decided to give me a 2-star rating. I know how the internet is. I can't please every listener. But if you do give me a bad rating, which I hope you do not, honestly, then please tell me what you didn't like. Just rating me poorly without a comment? I can't improve on that. Well, enough said on that topic. Thank you for listening. And as always, auf Wiedersehen.